Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. As time crept by in the stadium, things fell into a pattern. Sleep at night, if you could. Endure the days. In the mornings, wake-up was perpetrated by a siren at 6 a.m., Bread and water for breakfast, then line-ups for the foul toilets. Naturally, we began to stink. The smell of blood was added to the sweat and tears and shit and puke. To breathe was to be nauseated. The rest of each day would unfurl like a toxic flower, petal by petal, agonizingly slow. We were marched out in a line and slotted into the bleachers to sit under the blazing sun. Hour by hour, we watched vans arrive, discharge their quota of women. The same wailings from the new arrivals, the same barking and shouts from the guards. How tedious is a tyranny in the throes of enactment. It's always the same plot. Anita and I contrived to sit next to each other most days and to sleep in proximity. You were a damn fine judge, she whispered to me on the third day. So were you, I whispered back. Were was chilling. The afternoons were chosen for the executions. The same parade out to the middle of the field with the blinded condemned ones. I noticed more details as time went on, how some could hardly walk, how some seemed barely conscious. The same man in the black uniform, exhorting into a microphone, God will prevail. Then the shots, the toppling, the limp bodies. On the fourth day, there was a variation. Three of the shooters were women. They were in long, brown garments, with scarves tied under their chins. Monsters, I whispered to Anita. On the fifth day, there were six women in brown. There was also an uproar, as one of them pivoted and shot one of the men in black uniforms. She was immediately bludgeoned to the ground and riddled with bullets. So, I thought, that's one way out. On the sixth night, Anita was spirited away. When I woke up, she was simply not there. On the seventh night, it was me. I was wakened by a boot applied to the hip, steered through the corridors, and then out of a back entrance and into a car. The car stopped outside a police station. It was no longer a police station, however. The lettering had been covered over, and on the front door there was an image, an eye with wings. We went along the corridor and turned into one of the rooms. There, behind a large desk, sat a man who looked faintly like Santa Claus, plump, white beard, rosy cheeks, cherry nose. He beamed at me. You may sit down, he said. Thank you, I replied. Not that I had a choice. My two travel buddies were inserting me into a chair and attaching me to it with plastic straps. I should introduce myself, he said. I am Commander Judd of the Sons of Jacob. This was our first meeting. I suppose you know who I am, I replied. That is correct, he said, smiling blandly. I apologize for the inconveniences you have been exposed to. It was nothing, I said, straight-faced. It is foolish to joke with those who have absolute control over you, but I was careless back then. His smile vanished. Are you thankful to be alive? Well, yes. Are you thankful that God made you in a woman's body? I suppose so. I am not sure you are thankful enough, he said. What would thankful enough be like? Thankful enough to cooperate with us, he said. It's a yes or a no, 
I was trained as a lawyer, I said. I'm a judge. I don't sign blank contracts. You are not a judge, he said, anymore. And that is how I found myself in the thank tank. It was a repurposed police station isolation cell, approximately four paces by four. It had a bed shelf, though there was no mattress. It had a bucket. It had once had a light, but no more. I can do this, I thought. I can get through. I was right, but only just. One person alone is not a full person. We exist in relation to others. I was one person. I risked becoming no person. I was in the thank tank for some time. I don't know how long. Every once in a while, there would be a scream or a series of shrieks from nearby. Brutalization on parade. Sometimes there would be a prolonged moaning, sometimes a series of grunts and breathy gasps that sounded sexual and probably were. The powerless are so tempting. One day, if it was a day, three men came into my cell without warning, shone a glaring light into my blinking, purblind eyes, threw me on the floor, and administered a precise kicking and other attentions. The noises I emitted were familiar to me. I had heard them nearby. Did I weep? Yes. Tears came out of my two visible eyes, my moist, weeping human eyes. But I had a third eye in the middle of my forehead. I could feel it. It was cold, like a stone. It did not weep. It saw. And behind it, someone was thinking, I will get you back for this. Then, after an indefinite period, the door to my thank-tank cell clanged open, light flooded in, and two black uniforms hauled me out. Next thing I knew, I was in a hotel room. Enjoy your stay, said one of my minders. The door locked behind them. On the small table, there was a tray with orange juice and a serving of poached salmon, a bed with sheets, a shower, above all, a beautiful ceramic toilet. I inspected my healing abrasions, my yellowing and purpling bruises. I could not get a good fix on my face in the bathroom mirror, however. Who was that person? The features seemed blurred. Then I slept for a long time. I was still in a state of mental disarray. But on the third morning, or was it an afternoon, I woke in an improved state of coherence. It seemed I could think again. It seemed I could think the word I. In addition to that, and as if in acknowledgement of it, there was a fresh garment laid out for me. I had seen it before, in the stadium, worn by the female shooters. I felt a chill. I put it on. What else should I have done? I will now describe the preparations leading up to my proposed marriage. One evening, Paula called me into the living room. Commander Kyle was there, and so was an aunt who was introduced to me as Aunt Gabbana. She's truly a woman, said Aunt Gabbana, eyeing me shrewdly. Of course, said Paula. None of that's padding, said Aunt Gabbana, nodding towards my chest. Certainly not, said Paula. You'd be amazed at what some families try. Well then, we will start looking. Only among the commander families, said Paula. Nothing lower. That is understood, said Aunt Gabbana. She's a little young, said Commander Kyle. Possibly. 
I was grateful to him for the first time in a long while. Thirteen is not too young, said Aunt Gabbana. Don't worry, Agnes, she said to me. You'll have a choice among at least three candidates. They will consider it an honor. Aunt Gabbana left, exchanging smiles with my non-parents. You are a very privileged girl, Agnes, said Paula. I hope you appreciate that. She gave me a malicious little smirk. She knew she was talking froth. The next thing Aunt Gabbana did was to bring green dresses for me. And I knew what they meant. Spring green was for fresh leaves, so the girl was ready for marriage. Once I had the green wardrobe, I was enrolled in another school. Ruby's Premarital Preparatory, a school for young women of good family who were studying to be married. This school was also run by the ants. Shunamite and Becca from the Vidala school were in the same class with me. They seemed much older. Shunamite had coiled her dark braids around behind her head and said she was looking forward to being married. She wanted a widower who was high-ranking and handsome. She didn't want some young jerk who'd never had sex before. She'd always had a reckless mouth, but now it was more so. Becca was even thinner. She'd begged and begged her family not to marry her yet, but they'd received a very good offer. The eldest boy of a son of Jacob and Commander, who was well on his way to becoming a commander himself. Her father, Dr. Grove the dentist, said it would be an insult to refuse, and did she wish to ruin him? But I don't want to! She would wail to us when Aunt Lise was out of the room. To have some man crawling all over you, like, like worms. I hate it. It occurred to me that she didn't say she would hate it. She said she already hated it. But I didn't want to ask her. Another girl's disgrace could rub off on you if you got too close to it. I couldn't share the story of my dental appointment with Dr. Grove. He was still Becca's father and it now seemed to me trivial in view of Becca's genuine horror. She really did believe that marriage would obliterate her. Away from Shunamite, I asked her why her mother wouldn't help her. Then there were tears. Her mother wasn't her real mother. Her real mother had been a handmaid. Like yours, Agnes, she said. Her official mother had used that fact against her. Why was she so afraid of having sex with a man? since her slut of a handmade mother hadn't had such fears. I hugged her then, and said I understood. As the summer wore on, Aunt Lise taught us flower arrangement, the Japanese style and the French style. Becca was deeply dejected. Her wedding was planned for November. The man selected for her had paid his first visit to her family, and she said he'd made her flesh crawl. On the fourth day of French-style flower arranging, Becca slashed her left wrist with the secateurs. I'd been watching when she did it. I could not forget her expression. It had a ferocity I had never seen in her before. An hour after I'd put on the penitential garb provided for me, there was a knock at the door. A two-man escort was waiting to take me to my white-bearded interlocutor from the time before, this time seated comfortably in an armchair. You may sit down, said Commander Judd. I hope our little regimen was not too strenuous for you. You were treated only to level one. Was it enlightening? How do you mean? Did you see the light, the divine light? It was enlightening, I said. This seemed to be sufficient. Fifty-three? You mean my age? Yes. You've had lovers? Briefly, I said. Several. You had an abortion? So they'd been rifling through some records. Only one, I said fatuously. I was very young. He made a disapproving grunt. You are aware that this form of person murder is now punishable by death. The law is retroactive. I was not aware of that. I felt cold. One marriage? A brief one. It was a mistake. 
Divorce is now a crime, he said. I said nothing. Never blessed with children? No. Pity. Under us, every virtuous woman may have a child, one way or another, as God intended. But I expect you were fully occupied in your, um, so-called career. I ignored the slight. I had a demanding schedule, yes. Domestic cases, sexual assault, sex workers suing for enhanced protection. He was reading from a list. Short stint as a volunteer at a rape crisis center. When I was a student, you stopped because... I got too busy, I said. Then I added another truth. Also, it wore me down. Yes, he said, twinkling. It wears you down, all that needless suffering of women. We intend to eliminate that. He paused, as if giving me a moment to ponder this. So, which is it to be? You mean yes or no? Correct. Let me just say that those who are not with us are against us. I see, I said. Then it's yes. You will have to prove, he said, that you mean it. There was an ordeal. The women were blindfolded. And when I shot, I did not fall. That was Commander Judd's test. Fail it, and your commitment to the one true way would be voided. Pass it, and blood was on your hands. I did show some weakness. I threw up afterwards. One of the targets was Anita. My first meeting with Elizabeth, Helena, and Vidala took place the day after my trial by murder in the stadium. Before Commander Judd was a tray with a coffee pot and cups. He poured ceremoniously, smiling. Congratulations, he began. You have passed the test. You are brands snatched from the burning. You may have been wondering why a person such as myself, successful enough under the previous corrupt dispensation, has acted in the way I have. Some might call the overthrowing of an illegitimate government an act of treason. Now that you have joined us, it is the same thought that others will have about you. But loyalty to a higher truth is not treason, for the ways of God are not the ways of man, and they are most emphatically not the ways of woman. Vidala watched us being lectured by him, smiling a tiny smile. Whatever he was persuading us about was already an accepted creed to her. He continued, We have seen the results of too much laxity, too much hunger for material luxuries, and the absence of the meaningful structures that lead to a balanced and stable society. Our birth rate, most significantly through the selfish choices of women, is in free fall. We nodded. Society is best served by separate spheres for men and women. We have seen the disastrous results of the attempt to meld those spheres. Any questions so far? Yes, Commander Judd, I said. I have a question. Proceed. What do you want? We're building a society congruent with the divine order. We believe that you, with your privileged training, are well qualified to aid us in ameliorating the distressing lot of women that has been caused by the decadent and corrupt society we are now abolishing. He paused. Through your former... He did not want to say professions. Through your former experiences, you know how women are likely to react to stimuli. Simply put, we want you to help us to organize the separate sphere for women, with, as its goal, the optimal amount of harmony, both civic and domestic, and the optimal number of offspring. My um, colleague, 
he indicated Vidala, has volunteered to be your spiritual instructor, having been part of our movement since its inception. There was a pause, while Elizabeth, Helena, and I absorbed this information. I am sure we can help, I said finally. But women have been told for so long that they can achieve equality, they will not welcome the segregation. It was always a cruelty to promise them equality, he said. We have already begun the merciful task of lowering their expectations. I did not want to inquire about the means being used. Of course, you will need to create laws, he said. You'll be given a budget, a base of operations, and a dormitory. Here... I took a risk. If it is to be a separate female sphere, I said, it must be truly separate. Within it, women must command. We shall be judged solely by our results. He gave me a measuring look, subject, of course, to my final approval. I looked at Elizabeth and Helena and saw grudging admiration. Of course, I said. I'm not convinced that's wise, said Vidala. Women are weak vessels, Commander Judd cut her off. Men have better things to do than to concern themselves with the petty details of the female sphere. He nodded at me, and Vidala shot me a look of hatred. And so we began. During those initial sessions, I took stock of my fellow founders, for as founders, we would be revered in Gilead. If it's a hen yard, I thought, I intend to be the alpha hen. In Vidala, I had already made an enemy, but I had an advantage. I was not blinded by ideology. Of the other two, Helena would follow the prevailing wind, I decided, and that would work for me as long as I was that wind. Elizabeth was from a higher social sphere. It would lead her to underestimate me. Divide and conquer would be my motto. Week by week, we invented laws, uniforms, slogans, hymns, names. Week by week, we reported to Commander Judd, who turned to me as the spokeswoman of the group. For those concepts he approved, he took the credit. Did I hate the structure we were concocting? On some level, yes. It was a betrayal of everything we'd achieved in our former lives. Was I proud of what we managed to accomplish? Also, on some level, yes. I will record here that some years later... After I had tightened my grip over Ardua Hall, Commander Judd, sensing that the balance had shifted, sought to propitiate me. I hope you have forgiven me, Aunt Lydia, he said. For what, Commander Judd? The stringent measures I was forced to take at the outset of our association. Oh, I said, I'm sure your intentions were noble. I believe so. But still, the measures were harsh. I smiled, said nothing. Your rifle contained a blank, he said. So kind of you to tell me. I am forgiven then, he asked. If I hadn't been so keenly aware of his preference for barely nubile young women, I'd have thought he was flirting. I plucked a scrap from the grab bag of the vanished past. To err is human. To forgive, divine. So I was a refugee. Like the frightened women I'd seen in Sanctacare. Like the other refugees everyone was always arguing about. Gilead had never given up on the idea of finding me, Elijah told me. Was that why Melanie and Neil didn't want me going to the march? In a way, said Ada. So it was my fault, 
I said. They got killed because they were hiding me. Not exactly, said Elijah. They didn't want pictures of you on TV. But Gilead suspected independently that Melanie and Neil were Mayday. Elijah left and came back in a couple of hours with a tall, thin young man, whom he introduced as Garth. Garth looked at me with interest and said, Baby Nicole? How did I get smuggled out of Gilead? I asked Ada. When I was baby Nicole, your mother gave you to some trusted friends. They took you north up the highway, then through the woods into Vermont. Were you one of the trusted friends? I used to be a guide around there. I knew people. We took you over the mountains and down into Canada, three rivers. So where is she now? My mother. She was up to her neck in it. She's lucky she's alive. They've tried to kill her twice that we know of. What about my father? He's so deep underground, he needs a breathing tube. The Canadian government's under a lot of pressure from Gilead to crack down on Mayday, Elijah said. We know this. How? Our inside source, said Elijah. But we got that before the clothes hound was burgled and we lost contact. So where can we put her? said Garth, nodding at me. What about where my mother is? I asked. Safe is a matter of time for her, said Elijah. So I, I might as well give up because they'll kill me sooner or later? Oh no, said Ada. They don't want to kill you. Killing baby Nicole would be a very bad look for them. They'll want you in Gilead, alive and smiling, said Elijah. I wish there was no Gilead, I said. That's our goal, said Ada. No Gilead. I was feeling more and more hopeless. Gilead had all the power. They'd killed Melanie and Neil. They would track down my unknown mother and kill her too. They would wipe out Mayday. They'd get a hold of me somehow and drag me into Gilead, where the women might as well be house cats. What can we do? I asked. I'm coming to that, said Elijah. The source had been promising to deliver a very big document cache to Mayday, said Elijah. Whatever this cache contained would blow Gilead sky high. But he or she hadn't finished assembling it before the clothes hound was robbed and the link was broken. The source had contrived a fallback plan, however. A young woman, claiming to have been converted to the faith of Gilead by the Pearl Girls missionaries, could enter Gilead easily. And the best young woman to transfer the cash, indeed the only young woman acceptable to the source, would be baby Nicole. The source did not doubt that Mayday knew where she was. The source had made it clear. No baby Nicole, no document cash. Why only me? The source said you're the best chance. For one thing, if you get caught, they won't dare kill you. They made too much of an icon out of baby Nicole. I, I can't destroy Gilead. Not alone, of course not, said Elijah. But you'd be transporting the ammunition. I couldn't be a convert. They'd never believe me. We'll train you. Praying and self-defense. Self-defense? Remember the pearl girl found dead in the condo, said Ada. She was working for our source. There's a lot of people dying. Gilead's not shy about killing, said Ada. They're fanatics. I somehow agreed to go to Gilead without ever definitely agreeing. Ada and Elijah said they wanted to prepare me as much as they could in the short time they had. They set up a little gym with a punching bag, a skipping rope, and a leather medicine ball. Garth did that part of the training. He told me he was from the Republic of Texas. They'd declared independence at the beginning of Gilead. Right now, Texas was officially neutral, and any actions against Gilead by its citizens were illegal. Not that Canada wasn't neutral too, he said. But it was neutral in a sloppier way. So he and some of his friends had come to Canada to join the Mayday Lincoln Brigade for foreign freedom fighters. At first, I worked out twice a day for two hours to build stamina. Ada brought in a dummy head made from molded plastic with gel eyes, and Garth tried to teach me how to poke somebody's eyes out. 
How's it going? Ada would ask Garth every day after our workout. Can she kill with her thumbs yet? <laughs> She's getting there. The other part of their training plan was the praying. Ada tried to teach me that. How do you know this? I asked her. Where I grew up, everyone knew this. Where? In Gilead. Before it was Gilead. I saw it coming and got out in time. A lot of people I know didn't. So that's why you work with Mayday? It's personal? Everything's personal. How about Elijah? Was it personal for him too? He taught in a law school. He was on a list. Someone tipped him off. The next stage, they told me, was that I should dress up like a street person and panhandle somewhere where the Pearl Girls would see me. When they started to talk with me, I should let them persuade me to go with them. The other street people will see I'm a fraud. Garth will be there with you. He'll say you don't talk much because you've been traumatized, said Ada. He'll stay right with you until the Pearl Girls pick you up. You'll be one more precious pearl on their string. But once you get to Gilead, it might be different, said Elijah. You'll have to wear what they tell you to wear and be alert to their customs. If you know too much to begin with, though, Ada said, they'll suspect us of training you. I thought about this. Was I clever enough? Have you sent any pretend converts in there before? A couple, said Elijah. But they didn't have the protection you'll have. You mean from the source? The source? Who were they, really? Guesswork, but we think it's one of the ants, said Ada. Mayday didn't know much about the ants. They weren't in the news, not even in the Gilead news. It was the commanders who gave the orders, made the laws, and did the talking. The ants worked behind the scenes. They're said to be very powerful, said Elijah. Pack of evil harpies, said Ada. I should choose another name, Garth said. People might be looking for a daisy. So I said I'd be Jade. I wanted something harder than a flower. The source said she needs to get a tattoo on her left forearm, Ada said. But there's no bare arms in Gilead, so who's going to see it? We think it's for the Pearl Girls, said Ada. They'll be directed to look specially for it. Will they know who I am? Like the Nicole thing? They just follow instructions, said Ada. The source said it should look like this. And she sketched God and love, sharing the O. Ada brought in a woman she knew to do the tattoo, and the rest of my street makeover. The first thing she did was tint my hair a pastel green shade. It's a start, said Ada. The tattoo wasn't just a tattoo. It was a scarification, raised lettering. It hurt like shit. Under cover of darkness, I installed two surveillance cameras in the base of my statue. There were several days of no activity, but on the fourth day, who should loom into the camera's field of vision just as dawn was breaking but Aunt Vidala? From a pocket, she produced an egg, followed by an orange. Having looked about her to make sure no one was watching, she placed these votive offerings at my feet. Then, on the ground beside the statue, she dropped a handkerchief embroidered with lilacs, a well-known prop of mine. She had previously come to me with a story that Elizabeth was trying to incriminate me by planting votive offerings. She had claimed the excess attention was dangerously close to cult worship, which would be idolatry. But I could see Vidala herself was placing the evidence against me, you can imagine my delight. Any false step by my main challenger was a gift from destiny. My esteemed founder colleague Elizabeth must soon be told that Vidala was accusing her of treachery. Should I add Helena as well? How might I best set the members of the triumvirate eager to overthrow me against one another, all the better to pick them off one by one? 
The wheel of fortune rotates, fickle as the moon. I will inform Commander Judd that baby Nicole is finally almost within my grasp and may shortly be enticed to Gilead. Soon the prize will be yours, I will warble. Nine years ago, it was the same year my statue was unveiled, I was in my office tracing the bloodlines for a proposed marriage when I was interrupted by the appearance of Aunt Lisa. We've had another suicide attempt among the premarital preparatory students at Ruby's, said Aunt Lisa. Not a suicide. Not again, I thought. There is always an inquiry when they do succeed, and fingers are pointed at Ardour Hall. Inappropriate mate selection is the usual accusation, we at the hall being responsible for making the first cut, since we hold the bloodline's information. She attempted to slash her wrists with the secateurs I use for flower arranging. I called in the paramedics, then I notified the proper authorities. Quite right. Guardians or eyes? Some of each. I nodded. You seem to have handled it in the best way possible. What is there left to consult me about? She says she will try it again, unless the wedding is called off, said Aunt Lisa. Is it this particular candidate she objects to, or marriage in general? In general? Despite the benefits? Flower arranging was no inducement? I asked dryly. It was not. Was it the prospect of childbirth? I could understand that, the mortality rate being what it is, of newborns primarily, but also of the mothers. No, not childbirth, said Aunt Lisa. What then? I liked to make her blurt it out. It's good for Aunt Lisa to confront reality once in a while. She paused, flushed, cleared her throat. Well... It's the penises. It's like a phobia. Penises, I said thoughtfully. Them again. You tried the sleep deprivation and 20-hour prayer sessions? She's adamant. She also says she has received a calling to higher service, though as we know they often use that excuse. I sighed. Will she be able to learn the reading and writing? Is she intelligent enough? Oh, yes. Slightly too intelligent. We'll admit her on probation. We need to replenish our numbers here at Ardua Hall. We of the older generation cannot live forever. I am familiar with these exceptionally squeamish girls. Even if the wedding night is accomplished... They will soon be found in a coma under a rose bush, having swallowed every pill in the house. And so I had to involve myself in the case of the girl, Becca. Aunt Lisa brought her to my office, a thin girl with large, luminous eyes and her left wrist in a bandage. Come in, I said to her. I won't bite. Hesitantly, she sat down hands folded in her lap. So you want to become an aunt? She nodded. Then I launched into my spiel. Becca was so grateful. She would do anything that was required. We had saved her from... from... She stumbled to a halt, blushing. Did something unfortunate involving a man happen to you in your earlier life, my child? I don't want to talk about it, she said. You're afraid you'll be punished? A nod from her. She was still reluctant, so I did not push it. The mills of the gods grind slowly, I said, but they grind exceeding small. She looked puzzled. I mean, that whoever it was, his behavior will be punished in time. We aunts do not work openly in such cases, but we work. 
Now I hope you'll prove that you are deserving of the trust I have placed in you, I said. Oh, yes, she said. I will be deserving. I'm so grateful. I smiled my wintry smile. I'm pleased to hear that, I said. Gratitude is valuable to me. I like to bank it for a rainy day. Anne Cabana visited us at our house and showed us photographs of three candidates for Paula and Commander Kyle to consider. My own inclinations would naturally be taken into account, said Aunt Gabbana. Of course, Paula said. The first candidate was a full commander, and was even older than Commander Kyle. He was red-nosed, with slightly bulbous eyes, the mark, said Aunt Gabbana, of a strong personality, one who would be a reliable sustainer of his wife. He had a white beard and jowls underneath it. He was one of the first sons of Jacob, and so was exceptionally godly, and had been essential in the early struggle to establish the Republic of Gilead. In fact, it was rumored that he had been part of the group that had masterminded the attack on the morally bankrupt Congress of the former United States. He'd already had several wives, dead, unhappily. His name was Commander Judd. The second candidate was younger and thinner. He had managed to have one child by his former wife, who had died in an asylum for mental sufferers, but the poor infant had expired before the age of one. The third man, the younger son of a lower-ranking commander, had a thick neck and eyes that were close together. "'Take your time, Agnes,' Anne Gabbana said. "'Your parents want you to be happy.' This was a kind thought, but a lie. They wanted me to be elsewhere. I lay in bed that night with the three photographs of the eligible men floating in the darkness before my eyes. I pictured each one of them on top of me, trying to shove his loathsome appendage into my stone-cold body. I considered running away from home, but I might not get any farther than the next block before being ripped to shreds, polluted, and reduced to a pile of wilting green petals. The week I'd been granted in which to choose my husband wore on. Paula and Commander Kyle favored Commander Judd. He had the most power. I'd overheard the Marthas saying that before some weddings, tranquilizing drugs had been administered. They had to be careful with the dose. Mild, staggering, and slurred speech could be put down to emotion, but a ceremony at which the bride was unconscious did not count. I pretended to be deciding. At the end of the week, my engagement was announced. It was to Commander Judd, as it was always going to be. He appeared at the house in his full uniform with medals, and bowed to Paula. "'Good evening, Agnes, my dear,' said Commander Judd. "'Good evening,' I managed to whisper. "'Sir.' The commander advanced, and stuck his mouth onto my forehead in a chaste kiss. He drew back, regarding me shrewdly. Had I shuddered while he was kissing me? "'You may go now.' Agnes Jemima, said Paula. She seems obedient, I heard Commander Judd saying as I left the room. She's always been a respectful child, said Paula. What a liar she was. Three aunt wedding arrangers made a visit to measure me for my wedding dress. I don't know why we are bothering with the frills, Paula said to the aunts, talking past me. She won't appreciate them. She won't be the one looking at them, said Aunt Sarah Lee with unexpected bluntness. The wedding itself would take place as soon as the dress was ready. Therefore, it was safe to plan it for two weeks from this day. As the days ticked past, I became more desperate. I remembered a story, circulated by Shunammite at school, about someone's handmaid who would swallow drain cleaner. Maybe I would have to go through with the ceremony and then murder Commander Judd on the wedding night, stick a purloined knife into his neck, then into mine. I fantasized about miraculous escapes, but who would help me? I went round and round in my head. What to do? I could scarcely eat. 
Wedding nerves, bless her soul, said Zilla. When there were only three days left, I had an unexpected visitor. Zilla called me downstairs. Aunt Lydia is here to see you, she said in hushed tones. The main founder, the ultimate aunt, come to see me. Paula was out, which was a lucky thing, though after I came to know Aunt Lydia better, I realized that luck had nothing to do with it. Aunt Lydia was sitting on the sofa in the living room. She actually smiled at me, a wrinkly, yellow-toothed smile. Agnes, my dear, she said, I thought you might like to hear some news about your friend Becca. Is she dead? Not at all. She is safe and happy. Where is she? She is at Ardua Hall, with us. She wishes to become an aunt and is enrolled as a supplicant. Oh, I said. A light was dawning. A door was opening. Not every girl is suitable for marriage, she continued. There are other ways a girl may contribute to God's plan. A little bird has told me that you may agree. Who had told her? Zilla? Yes, I said. Becca has received a call to higher service. If you yourself have such a calling, she said, you still have time to tell us. But how do I... I myself cannot be seen to be proposing this course of action directly... A calling can override the paternal right, but you must make the first approach to us. I suspect Aunt Este would be willing to listen. My next task was to find a pathway to Aunt Este. I could not declare my intention outright. Paula would lock me in my room. She'd resort to drugs. She was hell-bent on this marriage. The day after Aunt Lydia's visit... I told Paula I wanted to talk to Aunt Lorna about an alteration to my wedding dress. I wanted everything to be perfect for my special day, I said. It's a good thing Aunt Lydia paid you a visit, Paula said dryly. Naturally, she'd heard about that. But it would be a nuisance for Aunt Lorna to come to our house, said Paula. Aunt Lorna is at Shunamites, I said. In that case, our guardian could drive me over there, said Paula. I felt my heart quicken. Shunamite hurried me inside and took me to inspect her wedding dress and to hear all about the husband she would soon have, who, she whispered, giggling, looked like a carp, but who was medium high up among the commanders. I admired the dress. Shunamite said she'd heard I was practically marrying God, and I gazed downwards and said, but anyway, her dress was nicer. She was pleased by that. We found Aunt Lorna across the hall, in one of the spare rooms. I asked her to add something or other to my dress. A white bow, I can't remember. I said goodbye to Shunamite, waving cheerfully, and walked to our car. After that, heart hammering, I asked our driver if he wouldn't mind stopping by my old school, since I wished to thank my former teacher, Aunt Este. Those aren't my instructions, he said. I smiled. Commander Kyle's wife won't mind. I'll be married soon. To a very powerful commander. More powerful than Commander Kyle's wife. I paused. And then I am ashamed to say I placed my hand lightly on top of his. I'll make sure you're rewarded, I said. He pinkened. Well, then, he said. So this is how women get things done, I thought. I was disgusted with myself, but you'll notice this didn't stop me. I displayed a little ankle as I swiveled my legs into the car. He drove me to my old school as I'd requested, and I told him to wait for me. I wouldn't be long. I was lucky that Aunt Este was still there, though again it may not have been luck. Why, Agnes, she said, you're all grown up. They're making me marry a horrible disgust. Disgusting man, I said. I'll kill myself first. Then I burst into tears and crumpled onto her desk. It was acting in a way, but it was real acting, if you see what I mean.
Aunt Este asked me the question she was duty-bound to ask. Was I in earnest about killing myself? I said I was, and that if I didn't manage it before the wedding, I would be sure to do it afterwards, and I would kill Commander Judd the first time he laid a finger on me. I would do it with a knife, I said. I would cut his throat. I said this with conviction, so she would see that I was capable of it. And for that moment, I believed I was. I could almost feel the blood as it came pouring out of him. And then my own blood as well. I could almost see it, a haze of red. Aunt Este said that she understood my distress. But is there another way you feel you might contribute to the greater good? Oh, yes, I said. I'm called to higher service. Aunt Este asked me if she could pray silently. She needed guidance. I held my breath. I will speak with your parents, she said, and with Aunt Lydia. Thank you, I said. I was beginning to cry with relief. Do you want to come with me, she said, to talk with your parents? I can't. They'll get hold of me and lock me in my room, and then they'll give me a drug. You know they will. She didn't deny it. You can't stay here at the school, however. I couldn't stop the eyes from entering and removing you and changing your mind. You'd better come with me. She told my driver she would take responsibility for me. He gave me a filthy look. He knew that I'd tricked him. Then Aunt Este used her pager to call her own guardian driver, and we got into her car. The sun was setting. The leaves of the trees had that glossy sheen, so fresh and newly unfolded, as if they were gifts, each one, unwrapping itself, shaken out for the first time. Where are we going? I asked Aunt Este. Ardua Hall, she said. I'd heard Ardua Hall mentioned, always in hushed tones because it was a special place for the ants. Whatever the ants did when we weren't looking was not our concern, said Zilla. But I wouldn't want to be them, Zilla would add. Why not? I asked her once. Nasty business, said Vera. They get their hands dirty. So we don't have to, said Zilla mildly, rolling pie crust. They dirty up their minds, too, said Rosa. She was chopping onions with a large cleaver. Reading. She gave an extra loud chop. I never liked it. Better them than us, said Zilla. They can never have husbands, said Rosa. Not that I'd want one myself, but still. Or babies, either. They're too old, anyway, said Vera, all dried up. Despite this discouraging view of the ants, I'd been intrigued by the idea of Ardua Hall. We reached a gateway in a high, red-brick wall. The barred iron gate swung open for our car. Aunt Este took me by the arm, and we walked along the side of a large, grey stonework building, then past a statue of a woman. That is Aunt Lydia. Was it my imagination, or did Aunt Este give a little curtsy? We turned onto a paved pathway. Along one side of it was a long, three-story building of red brick. This is Ardua Hall, said Aunt Este. I'd been expecting something much grander. Come in. You will be safe here. I paced around the small room. Then I lay down on the narrow bed. There was a picture on the wall. Aunt Lydia, smiling an inscrutable smile. On the desk there was a book. I stared at it. What was inside it that made it so dangerous to girls like me? So flammable, so ruinous. I opened the front cover. No flames shot out. It's really hard at first, said a voice behind me. I hadn't heard the door open. I startled and turned. Becca, I said. I'd last seen her at Aunt Lisa's flower arranging class, with blood spurting out of her cut wrist. My name isn't Becca anymore, she said. I'm Anne Immortelle now. I'm a supplicant. But you can call me Becca when we're alone. I cried with relief at seeing Becca again. 
Paula came to Ardua Hall to try to get me to change my mind. Aunt Lydia said it was only proper that I should meet with her and assure her in person of the rightness and holiness of my decision. So I did. Paula was waiting for me in the Schlafly Café, where we at Ardua Hall were permitted to receive visitors. You have dishonored your father, she said. Membership in the ants is far from dishonorable, I said piously. I had a call to higher service. You're lying, said Paula. You are not the kind of girl God would ever single out. I stood up suddenly and smashed my teacup on the floor. How dare you question the divine will? Your sin will find you out. Act crazy, Becca told me. Then they won't want you marrying anyone. It will be their responsibility if you do anything violent. Paula was taken aback. But then she said, The ants need Commander Kyle's agreement, and he will never give it. So pack up, because you're leaving. Now. At that moment, however, Aunt Lydia came into the cafe. May I have a word with you? She said to Paula. The two of them moved to a table at some distance from me. When Paula stood up, she looked sick. She left the cafe without a word to me, and later that afternoon, Commander Kyle signed the formal permission granting authority over me to the ants. Next, I had to go through the interviews with the founding ants. My final interview was with Aunt Lydia. Agnes, Aunt Lydia said, I must congratulate you. Despite many obstacles, you have answered the call to join us. I nodded. I am sure you would not have made Commander Judd a fitting wife. No, Aunt Lydia, I said. I have already proposed a more appropriate choice for him, she said. Your former schoolmate, Shunamite. Shunamite? But she's going to marry someone else. These arrangements can always be altered. Would Shunamite welcome the change of husbands, do you think? I remembered Shunamite's barely concealed envy of me, and her excitement over the material advantages her wedding would bring. Commander Judd would confer ten times as many of those. I am sure she would be deeply grateful, I said. I agree. She smiled. It was like an old turnip smiling the dried-up kind our Marthas used to put in soup stock. Welcome to Ardua Hall, she continued. I hope you are grateful for the help I have given you. I am, Aunt Lydia. I am truly grateful. It has been so crucial... To have had the privilege of being a fly on the wall, or, to be more exact, an ear inside the wall. So instructive, the confidences shared by young women when they believe no third party is listening. Gradually, my dossiers filled up. In the matter of Becca, it took years. She'd always been so reticent about the primary cause of her distress, even to her school friend Agnes. But in bits and pieces it came out. I had known about this for some time, but I had passed over it since the testimonies of young girls would count for little or nothing. Even with grown women, four female witnesses are the equivalent of one male here in Gilead. Grove had depended on that. But what the wretched Dr. Grove had done to the young Becca, the very young Becca, and then the older but still young Becca, that, to my mind, demanded retribution. Becca herself could not be relied upon to exact it. She would not testify against Grove, of that I was certain from what I had overheard. But once a judge, always a judge, I judged, I pronounced the sentence but how to carry it out. After pondering for some time, I decided last week to make my move. I invited Aunt Elizabeth for a cup of mint tea at the Schlafly Café. I thought we should have a confidential talk, I said. She leaned forward, expecting gossip 
Aunt Vidala is attempting to incriminate you. She claims that you are accusing me of heresy and idolatry by planting eggs and oranges on my own statue. Well, that is untrue. Why would Vidala say that? I've never harmed her. Aunt Vidala is ambitious. She may have detected that you are de facto second in command to me. Here Elizabeth brightened. I'm not in the best of health. She must feel that in order to claim her rightful position as successor at Ardua Hall, it is necessary to eliminate you. Hence her desire for new rules, outlawing the offerings at my statue. With punishments, I added. How could she be so vindictive? Elizabeth sobbed. I will protect you. I'm immensely grateful, Aunt Lydia. Thank you, I said. But there is one little thing I want you to do for me in return. Of course, she said. My first day as the runaway jade, I was sitting cross-legged on the sidewalk with Garth. I had a sleeveless top, because Ada said I should display my new tattoo. The two of us were set up outside a bank. The Pearl Girls had a route they followed, and our spot was on it. We were backed against the wall, in a little slice of shade, and I had a cardboard sign. Homeless. Please help. Smile at the people if they toss in. Garth said after I'd failed to do this for an old lady. Some people say, God bless you. <laughs> that would be a lie, if I don't believe in God. Don't waste your anger on me, said Garth. Save it for Gilead. You all said I had to have attitude. Here come the Pearl Girls, he said. Don't stare at them. Act like you're stoned. Soon they were level with us. Two of them in their silvery-gray dresses, their white collars, their white hats. A redhead, from the wisps of her hair that were showing, and a brunette, judging from the eyebrows. We can help you, said the brunette. No homeless in Gilead. Garth put his hand on my right arm, gripped it possessively. She's not talking to you. Isn't that up to her, said the redhead. What's that on your arm? said the brunette. Is he abusing you, dear? the redhead asked. Get off, Gilead bitches, Garth said with impressive savagery. I looked up at the two of them, and believe it or not, a tear rolled down my cheek. Oh my, said the redhead, a real hero. She thrust a brochure at me. God bless. The two of them left, glancing back once. Wasn't I supposed to let them pick me up? I said. We can't make it too easy for them, said Garth. They'll be back. That night we slept under a bridge. We had several green plastic garbage bags to lie down on. Garth wrapped his arms around me. The next night, Garth got into a fight with one of the men under the bridge. Then he said we should relocate. So the next night, we slept inside a downtown church. The fourth night was a cemetery. When are the Pearl Girls going to show up again? I asked on the morning of the fifth day. Maybe they've rejected me. Be patient, said Garth. As Ada said, we've sent people into Gilead this way before. A couple let themselves be scooped on the first pass. They got flushed before they even crossed the border. Thanks. I'm going to screw this up. I know it. Keep cool. You'll be fine. We're all counting on you. No pressure, right? I said. Later that same day, the Pearl Girls came our way again. They loitered around, passing by, then crossed the street and walked in the other direction, looking in store windows. Then, when Garth went off to get us some burgers, they came over. They asked me what my name was, and I said Jade. Then they introduced themselves. Aunt Beatrice was the brunette, Aunt Dove was the freckled redhead. They asked if I was happy, and I shook my head no. 
Then they looked at my tattoo and said I was a very special person to have undergone all that suffering for God, and they were glad I knew God cherished me. And Gilead would cherish me too, because I was a precious flower. And did that man who was with me, did he hit me? I hated to lie about Garth like that, but I nodded. And does he make you do bad things? I look stupid, so Aunt Beatrice, the taller one, said, Does he make you have sex? I gave the tiniest nod. And does he pass you around to other men? That was going too far, so I shook my head no. Why are you with him? said Aunt Dove. I didn't know where else to go, I said and burst into tears. There was violence at home. There is never violence in our homes in Gilead, said Aunt Beatrice. Then Garth came back and acted angry. He told me to shut up and said we were going. Aunt Beatrice said, could I have a word with you? She and Garth moved away out of hearing, and Aunt Dove handed me a tissue because I was crying and said, may I hug you on behalf of God? And I nodded. Aunt Beatrice came back and said, We can go now. And Aunt Dove said, Praise be. Garth had walked away. He didn't even look back. That young man sold you, said Aunt Beatrice with contempt. He did? I asked. Aunt Beatrice and Aunt Dove walked very close to me, one on either side. So nobody would bother me, they said. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.